This morning, we have a special guest who some of you may have heard this past Wednesday. Did anybody come Wednesday night for the uh, Reach Bakersfield workshop? Okay, I see a few hands out there. Um, you might have been here a while back at LBC when uh, Sean Cooper was here about, I don't know, it was probably about 2017, I think it was, and he preached on the same topic. Uh, Sean Cooper has spent the last 15 years traveling the entire continental U.S., casting mission, I'm sorry, mission vision to the church at large. He and his wife, Meredith, have four kids, Haven, eight, Harley, six, Sullivan, two, and Cass, six months old. Sean graduated from the University of Arkansas with a degree in communication. He has short-term mission exposure in India, Indonesia, Mexico, and Ukraine. For 13 years, he served on staff with the Traveling Team, a collegiate missions mobilization organization. Currently, he uh, serves on staff with Global Serve International, or what we call GSI. It's a mission-sending agency that works to plant churches among the hardest unreached language groups in the world. And we actually support a couple that is with the GSI organization. And matter of fact, there's another table if you go out to your left over by the, by the wall over there. Um, you can get some more information about the missionaries that we support in unreached people groups. Uh, when not speaking, he loves to cycle and spend time with his family. He has a passion to see men discipled and developed for great commission work. And he's currently working on a master's degree from Reformed Theological Seminary. So we're looking for uh, more things for him to do because it sounds like he's not busy enough. So can you please give a warm LBC welcome to my friend Sean Cooper. Well, good morning, friends. If you would, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. <clears throat> I'll be reading from verse 3. Acts chapter 1, verse 3. says the following, <clears throat> he, that is Jesus, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. What Luke tells us in Acts chapter 1 verse 3 is that post-resurrection, pre-ascension, Jesus manifested himself or appeared to the disciples for a 40-day period of time. And it was during this 40-day period of time that Luke tells us that Jesus was busy speaking about the kingdom of God. Now we can probably safely bet that Jesus said a lot during this 40-day period of time. However, all that we have recorded that was said during this 40-day period is Jesus' last words. We find at the tail end of the four Gospels, and friends, last words are not wasted words. Last words are not wasted words. I remember it literally almost like it was yesterday. It was September 30th, 2013, and I was pulling into the driveway of my boss, who served as the executive director for the collegiate ministry that I served with. He lived in Riverside, California, and I remember pulling into his driveway on September 30th and receiving a phone call from my aunt, who never called me, so I knew something was wrong. And upon picking up the phone, my aunt said, Sean, your mother has had a massive stroke. If you hope to see her alive again, you should immediately purchase an airline ticket and fly home. And so I crossed the threshold, walked into my boss's front door and said, I just received a phone call that my mother is in ICU, I need to get a ticket and fly home immediately. So my wife and I purchased a ticket, we caught a red-eye flight out of LAX and flew through the night back to Arkansas. 
um, where I lived in order to try to see my mom. And I can promise you, friends, that on that plane ride home at 1.32 a.m. in the morning, I don't even remember exactly when it was, there were hundreds of thoughts that were rushing through my mind. I didn't know the full condition of my mom. I knew that it was serious enough that she was non-speaking, she couldn't function, and so I had all kinds of thoughts. And one of the thoughts that ran through my mind on that plane ride home was what the last words might be that I would get to speak to my mother. I wasn't even sure that I would get to share them, but the thought certainly crossed my mind, what might the last words be that I get to share with my mom? And for any of you who have lived for any amount of time, some of you have experienced probably something very similar. A room this size, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And as I thought about what the last words might be that I would share with my mom, friends, I certainly didn't want to be trite with those words. I didn't want to be wasteful with those words. I wasn't quite sure what words she would be able to comprehend. And so it was certainly a calculated thought on the plane ride home. And in the exact same way, friends, Jesus' last words were not wasteful words. Jesus' last words were not wasteful words. It was with his last words before he departed to take the seat at the right hand of the Father that he was very calculated in what he wanted the church and the apostles to be about. In fact, if you were to read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what we refer to as the Gospels, um, you'll notice that there are very few things that are mentioned in all four Gospel accounts. Some of those things include um, the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, one of those things includes the, uh, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. Uh, another one of those things is a loose description of Jesus' baptism. Um, and one of the other things that gets mentioned in all four gospel accounts is what we call, historically, Christians call the Great Commission. Raise your hand if you've heard of the Great Commission. Yeah, a few of us in the room have heard of the Great Commission. These words that we refer to historically as the Great Commission occurred during this 40-day period of time that I referenced from Acts 1-3. Now, fascinating <clears throat> that these words are Jesus' last words. In 2017, so about seven years ago, Barna, uh, the Christian research organization, did a survey asking churchgoers the following question. Have you heard of the Great Commission? 6% said, I'm not sure. 17% said, yes, I have heard of the Great Commission, and further, I know what it means. 25% said, yes, I've heard of the Great Commission, but I don't exactly know what it's about. And 51% of churchgoers, now I'm not identifying all these churchgoers as Christians, just so we're clear, but 51% of churchgoers said, no, I have no idea what the Great Commission is. I'm entirely uncertain of what Jesus' final marching orders were. One could argue, friends, that Jesus' last words were in many ways his first priority. And so you tallied the numbers up, upwards of 60 plus percent are confused as to what the Great Commission is. And so this morning, as a part of LBC's Reach the Nation sort of missions weekend, I think it's appropriate that we look at the Great Commission that we examine exactly what the Great Commission is in order to evaluate what the implications of it for, are for our lives. We cannot complete a task that we are entirely unclear on. So my aim this morning is for us to try to seek clarity on what these last words were that Jesus shared with the apostles. And friends, listen, by extension of the apostles, the church right? The church. These are a great commission that's not given to just a select few individual Christians, but 
all of those who are, in fact, united to the head. So before we walk into looking at these five passages, I would like to pray for us, and then we'll take our time this afternoon, this morning, unpacking what these texts look like. So if you would, please pray with me before we open the rest of God's Word. Father, thank you for this morning. For those who have gathered here, to come and hear and to listen. And Lord, we come into these doors and into this room need, needy, needy people. Lord, we come in here with many cares and many burdens. And you call your people to cast those burdens upon you because you are a God who cares for us. And so help us to cast those cares upon you, to lift our eyes off of ourselves, off of our present circumstances, up to you. And Lord, give us ears to hear as John has prayed. Give us eyes to see. Lord, you alone must make the soil of our heart ready to receive your word. God, lest it be choked out by the cares of this world, Lord, make it ready to receive so that it would bear fruit some 30, 60, and 100 fold. And Lord, help me as I prepare to speak and teach. Lord, I know that apart from you, I can do nothing. And so I ask for your help on my behalf and on behalf of those this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, the first commissioning text that we're going to look at is actually going to be the one that we're most familiar with in Matthew 28. Here are the five great commission passages that we're going to be unpacking this morning. And we're going to take these in the order that they come in the Bible themselves. Now this isn't necessarily the order in which they took place chronologically, but this is the order that they're in in our Bible and the most familiar order to us. And so this is the way we're going to be looking at them. In Matthew 28, Jesus tells them to make disciples of all nations. And then in Mark 16, 15... He tells the disciples to go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Luke 24, 47, forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. And then a fourth time in John 20, 21, as the Father has sent me, Jesus says, so am I sending you. And then in Acts 1, 8, just five verses after what we read this morning, he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so this is the order that we're going to be looking at these texts. There'll be no surprises in terms of where we're going this morning. And so we begin in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Now to set the context, Matthew 28, 18 through 20 is arguably the most detailed of these five commissioning passages. So we will spend the most amount of time here. If you're wondering how on earth we're going to get through all of these, fear not, little flock, okay? We will get you out to lunch in time, but we will spend the most amount of time in Matthew 28 because it's arguably the most detailed. Now if you... Feel free to turn over to Matthew 28 if you want. I'm going to have it on the screen. But if you're turning to Matthew 28, 18 through 20, in order to set up what's going on in this particular commissioning text, we need to look back two verses to Matthew 28, 16. And in Matthew 28, 16, Jesus tells the disciples that they are to meet him on a mountain in Galilee. Okay, on a mountain in Galilee. In fact, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Now, if you're a careful Bible reader, which I hope you are and I would encourage you to be, the fact that Matthew points out that Jesus directs the disciples to a mountain is no accident. Mountains is a major theme in the gospel of Matthew. They run through the entire gospel. And that's not happenstance. In fact, mountains are significant in the whole Bible, not just Matthew's gospel. You could just go back to the Old Testament to understand that there's a theology that's associated with mountains. And it's on mountains where, as one of my seminary professors told me, that heaven meets earth. And so we think of mountains and it's there that heaven meets earth. Further, we know from the Old Testament that it's on mountains where God speaks. The one that we're most familiar with is where God speaks to who? To Moses. Right? God speaks to Moses. It's on mountains, friends, where God speaks. And so as you walk your way through the Gospel of Matthew, if you're paying attention to the geography, 
Early in Matthew's gospel, we find Jesus giving the sermon on the, say it with me, the mount. Right? Further, we find not only the sermon on the mount, we find the mount of transfiguration, we find Jesus giving the discourse on the Mount of Olives, and then you come to the end of the Gospel of Matthew, and we find them giving a, or receiving, excuse me, one of these great commissioning passages on a mount. Now, that detail, in and of itself, tees us up to what Jesus is going to say when he comes to these guys, and the first words out of his mouth on the mount are the following. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Interpretation, Jesus is saying in short order, which he has already been doing in all of Matthew's gospel, that he is God. Which means that the next series of words that come out of his mouth are not throwaway words, right? They're not wasteful words. They're not useless words. These are the words coming from God himself. They've already heard him teach throughout the whole of Matthew's gospel with authority like no one else had taught. And so then he goes on to say to these men, not only has all authority in heaven and on earth been given to me, but as such, you are to go. You're to go, therefore, and you are to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the days. Now, we could take the time to look at all of the alls in this commissioning text. We're not going to do that. You may be asking, what alls are you referring to? All authority. Right, All nations, we could look at those alls, but we're going to come at it a little bit different way. And what I want us to do is I want us to unpack from this commissioning text what Jesus tells the disciples to do, how he tells them to do it, and where he tells them they're to go. Okay, So if you're taking notes, underneath this first commissioning text, we're going to talk about what they're to do, how they're to do it, and where they're to go. Notice Jesus tells the disciples, and not just the disciples, friends, but let me say this again, by extension of the disciples, the church, okay, the church, what they're to do. Here's what they're to do. They are to make disciples. Say it with me. Make disciples, okay? That's what they're to do. This is not a good option. It's not merely a good idea. It's not whether it's inconvenient to these men or not. It's a clear-cut command that they are to make disciples. That's arguably the main imperative here in this verse, is to make disciples. Further, it's not a program in the church, friends. It's not something that we merely pay the church staff to do. It's the work of everyone who waves the banner of Jesus Christ over their life who calls Christ their head, who claims him as their groom. It's the work of every believer. And so in my home church back in Arkansas, um, we have defined disciple-making very generally, okay, very generally. And some people like that. They find it helpful because it's broad. Other people would like more specificity. But here's how we define discipleship back at my home church in Fayetteville. Discipleship is seeking to do spiritual good to those within the body of Christ. Primarily speaking about our local church there in Fayetteville, but certainly beyond that. Let me say that again. Here's how we define discipleship. Seeking to do spiritual good to those within the body of Christ. Raise your hand if you can do that. Okay, three of you. Excellent. <laughs> okay? That's part of the reason why we keep it general in the way that we do. Because the bottom line is, all of this can be, and not only can be, but should be and must be making disciples. It should be the warp and woof of every Christian's life. In fact, just this morning as I was spending some time with the Lord before I came here to preach and teach, I was reading through Titus. And Paul reminds Titus right there in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, that 
Older men are to teach younger men. Older women are to what? Teach younger women. And so I would ask us this morning, by way of application, are you discipling someone? Are you being discipled by someone? Now this can take shape in many ways, in many forms, but at the very bottom, are you discipling someone? If, who, how long, what does that include? How are you seeking to do spiritual good to that person? And I'm not suggesting that you have to have 10 or 15 or 20. Are you just discipling one? In fact, by way of Jason's introduction, I would ask that you would pray for my sweet wife, who is at home with our four kids, eight, six, two, and six months. Many days as my wife finds herself changing diapers, there's a sink full of dishes, there's toys all over the floor, there's laundry in the machine. She finds herself, rightly so, discouraged and overwhelmed. It's my job as the leader of our household to remind her that she has an incredible opportunity to disciple our children. Moms, are you discipling your children? Fathers, are you leading your households by way of family worship, by way of regularly gathering on Sunday morning? Older men, younger men. Older women, younger women. Are you being discipled? And so Jesus is crystal clear that at the heart of the, <clears throat> the Great Commission is making disciples. That's what they're to do. Notice what he says to them next. He tells them how they're to do it. Not only are they to make disciples, but then he tells them how they're to do it. How are they to do it? They're to go, right? They're to go, they're to baptize, they're to teach. They're to go, they're to baptize, they're to teach. Now again, as the guy who's from out of town, I can sort of get away with some of this. I'm going to have you engage me again and say it with me. Go, baptize, teach. Go, baptize, teach. Go, baptize, and teach. That's really simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. Having been a Christian now for almost 20 years, having traveled around and spoke at different churches, it's mind-blowing to me, mind-blowing to me, how many books have been written on discipleship, how many programs have been produced on discipleship, and at the end of the day, Jesus boils it down to three things. Can you imagine there being a book that just said, disciple-making, go, baptize, teach, the end? <laughs> it certainly wouldn't sell. There to go, which implies this, friends, which implies this, that they're moving, right? Implicit in, in going is intentionality, movement forward, so to speak. And it's not just going overseas, it's certainly going across the street. So I would ask us, do, do we know our neighbors? We're certainly going to get to the part about the nations, don't worry, but starting with our neighbors, do we know who our neighbors are? Do we know them by name? Do we know what their needs and their struggles are? Are there ways that we've actively looked to engage them in conversation? We live in a world today, as we talked about Wednesday night at the evangelism session, we live in a world today that continues to paint us into a corner of not having to socialize with people. I can walk through the grocery store line and never have to interact with a clerk. I can pay for my gas and never have to go in. I can order groceries to my front doorstep and never have to interact with a person. And so are we being intentional with the people that God's putting us around? Are we going in that way? Further, notice that Jesus says that they're to go, they're to baptize, they're to teach. Just take, for example, the idea of teaching. If we're going to be able to make disciples and teach, we have to know what, friends? The Bible. We have to know the Bible. Inside and out. Backward and forward. The Bible's not merely for us to feed our souls on, which it is. But it's for us to give away to others. 
How do we know this? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, Paul tells Timothy, These things that you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to others, right, who will faithfully what? Do the work of teaching. We can't give away, friends, what we do not possess. How much of our time is spent, consumed with Netflix, with Prime Video, with CNN, with Fox, as opposed to putting down our controllers and picking up God's word and feasting on it. We can't teach what we don't know. And further, we're to engage in the work of baptism and the ordinances of the church. We're to go, we're to teach, we're to baptize. We're to go, we're to teach, we're to baptize. In fact, if you go back and you read in church history, right, during the days of the Reformation, as the reformers were trying to determine how do we define what a church is in the most basic terms, here's how the early Protestant reformers defined a church. A church is where the word is rightly taught, where the ordinances are rightly administered, and where church discipline is rightly carried out. Those are the three ways. And so notice, why do I give us this historical reference point during the Protestant Reformation? Because if you look within Matthew's right urge for us to go teach and baptize, where the word is taught, where the ordinances are what? Carried out. So implicit in the Great Commission is not just merely making more disciples, sharing the gospel, and seeing more Christians. Implicit in Matthew 28 is planting more churches. Another way to illustrate this is when Jesus says to make disciples, what he's after here is that we're planting more churches. The fruit of an apple tree, friends, is what? You might be tempted to say apples, but the fruit of an apple tree is actually more apple trees. It's more apple trees. And so Jesus is after the disciples planting more churches and us planting more churches. So what are they to do? They're to make disciples. How are they to do it? They're to go teach, baptize. Now, where are they to do it? Where are they to do it? <clears throat> if you take that word nations, Jesus tells them that they're to do this among all nations, right? If you take that word nations, you translate it back into the Greek, okay? The word is ethnos or ethne or pontata ethne, depending on whether you're looking at the singular or whether you're looking at the plural, And so when you see that word ethnos, think Jesus is saying, go make disciples of all ethnos, which is probably closer to what English word? Ethnicity, right? So what is it that defines an ethnic group? Well, there's many things. It could be a geographical barrier. It could be an economic barrier. It could be a religious barrier. But biblically speaking, the primary thing that determines what an ethnic group is, is language. Right? That's what primarily and biblically defines what an ethnic group is. And where do we get that from? In Genesis chapter 11 at the Tower of Babel, when God scattered humanity and they go from speaking one language to many languages. They go from one location to many locations. It's there that all of the known languages in the world today come from. We estimate that there's a little over 6,900 languages in the world today. 3,100 of them are what we would consider to be unreached. And as Jason pointed out, when I use the word unreached, when he used the word unreached, what we mean is that these people are completely cut off from access to Christ. These are not your neighbors across the street. They're not my neighbors across the street. Those people might be unsaved, but they are not unreached. When I say unreached, these people have no access. No Bible in their language, no church they can attend, and no one who speaks their language well enough that can preach the gospel to them clearly enough that they can respond. In fact, just to give you an illustration of this, this is the country of Nigeria. There's over 450 plus languages in Nigeria. We could look at something like Papua New Guinea. There's over 800 languages in Papua New Guinea. This is just one example. So when Jesus says make disciples of all nations, what he does not mean is make disciples just in the nation state, the geopolitical nation state of Nigeria. What Jesus is after is something much more closer to this. He wants disciples made and churches planted in every single one of these ethnic groups, which then leads us to ask a very serious question. What does reaching these people mean? What is it going to entail? It's going to entail a lot. Number one, it's going to entail someone having a long-term address change. We can't reach these people on short-term mission trips, although they are not bad. I'll advocate that you consider that as an option a little later on, but 
You can't reach these people in a short-term fashion. You can't microwave this process, which means if you're going to go to these places, reach these people, share the gospel, plant churches, raise up elders, raise up deacons, translate the scripture, and leave, it's a 10 to 15 to 20-year process. And the kind of people that we're sending to go do this work are not just those who are zealous, but it needs to be those who are qualified. Just because you have a warm, right, a warm heart and a willing, and a willing zeal to go does not mean that you're qualified. The kind of people that we're going to send to these places, they're going to have to be trained in cultural language acquisition. They're going to need to know the Bible inside and out. They're going to need to have a handle on the basic doctrines of Christianity. They're going to need to understand ecclesiology, which is a fancy word for the church, right? What is a church? How does it function? Who's in charge? What's the purpose of it? And not only are they going to need to know certain things, they're going to need to be a certain kind of person. They're going to need to be tested in their character. And where does that testing take place? It takes place within the context of the local church, right here, where the one another's are lived out, where we love one another, serve one another, cry with one another, rebuke one another, build one another up give to one another. It's here that those people are raised up. It's from within the context of the local church. And so, this is where they're to do it. And that's some of what it's going to take. More could be said there. So, Matthew 28, what are they to do? Make disciples. How are they to do it? They're to go teach and baptize. Where are they to do it? Among all nations. That brings us to our second commissioning text in Mark 16, 15. Now, I didn't say this in the first service, but I think it warrants saying in the second for those of you who are wondering about this passage being at the end of Mark's gospel, you could very easily go over to Mark 13.10, and you'll find the same substance in Mark 13.10 that we find in Mark 16.15. So having said that, here's what Mark 16.15 says. He tells these men that they are to go into all the world, and they are to proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Notice the similarities between this one and Matthew 28. They're to go. Right? Just like they were told in Matthew 28. Here they're told again that they're to go. But notice here that they're told to go into all the world. In Matthew 28, the focus is narrow. And what do I mean by narrow? Each language group. Right? There's a narrowness to the focus. Whereas in Mark 16, 15, there's a broadness. They're to go to the whole world, to all creation. Notice what they're to do. They are to proclaim. <clears throat> they're to proclaim. They're to speak. They're to open their mouth. They're to declare. Paul says, we proclaim Christ. The gospel is good news that must be spoken. Out of the overflow of the heart, friends, the mouth what? Speaks. We believe, therefore we speak. So what does this entail? Just to squeeze on this a little bit more. If you're going to do this in a cross-cultural setting, if you're going to do this in order to move towards seeing every tongue, tribe, nation, and language come to know Jesus Christ, you're arguably going to have to learn not just one language, but two. You'll have to learn a majority language. Think Hindi. And then you might have to learn a minority language. Think something like Telugu. Okay, you might have to learn a majority language like Pidgin in Papua New Guinea or a minority language like Yimbi And Rosetta Stone, friends, <laughs> will get you nowhere. It may take you three to four years to learn the first language and another three to four years to learn the second. I don't know if I have any linguists in the room, but friends of mine that are linguists say that it takes about 3,500 hours to learn a language proficiently. 3,500 hours. There to proclaim the gospel. Now, if you were to walk through the book of Acts, what I find fascinating is that in Mark 6, 15, 16, 15, when Jesus tells these guys there to proclaim, if you turn over to the book of Acts where we started our time, if you were to walk through it, what you'll see is that this is exactly what takes place. There is a very clear pattern in the book of Acts that goes like this. Where the apostles proclaim, they plant churches. Now, I've already argued that that's implicit in Matthew 28. 
But then if you see them doing the work of proclamation, here's what happens in the book of Acts. In the first seven chapters, the gospel begins to spread through Jerusalem. And then in Acts chapter 1, we're told that upon Stephen's stoning, the church in Jerusalem scatters. And so after Peter stands up in Acts chapter 2 and preaches this sermon at Pentecost, he's got 3,000 believers on his hands. Okay, that's a mega church, friends, in one sermon. That's a ton of work on the apostles' hands in light of one sermon. It's so much work that by the time you get to Acts chapter 6, they're trying to figure out how to appoint deacons to meet the physical needs of the church so that the apostles can pray and what? Preach, proclaim, speak, herald, declare. And so what happens? The gospel spreads through Jerusalem, and how does Luke identify all those disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8? He identifies them as the church in Jerusalem, where the gospel is proclaimed, churches are planted. And then here's what happens. In chapters 8 and 9, the gospel begins to spread through Judea and Samaria. Those who were scattered at Stephen's stoning went about preaching the word. And so you get to the end of Acts chapter 9, verse 31, and Luke identifies all those believers in Judea and Samaria as a church. And then as the gospel leaves Judea and Samaria and begins to move to the ends of the earth in Acts chapter 10, verse th through 28, as the gospel begins to spread, Paul and Barnabas are sent out and they go from place to place doing what, friends? Proclaiming, declaring, speaking. And in Acts 14, 23, they raise up elders and then they come back to Antioch to the church at Antioch, and they report the work that they had done. And so what am I arguing? That where the gospel is proclaimed, churches are what, friends? Planted. Churches are planted. And to do this in a cross-cultural setting means far more than parachuting in on a two-week trip, passing out gospel tracts, taking pictures, and coming home and telling war stories. Now, at the same time, I would say... Not all of us in this room need to go overseas. In fact, many of us sh shouldn't. But I am still of the hearty opinion that every believer in Jesus Christ should at least take one short-term mission trip. And so there's no reason, and I'm not saying this, friends, as the out-of-town speaker who's coming in to guilt trip you guys. Because listen, guilt's got a shelf life that's like 24 hours long. <laughs> it's a terrible motivator. <laughs> but there should be no reason why the short-term trips that are being led out of this church should not be entirely full. Instead of Jason having to say, hey, we're extending the, the deadline one week for applications, he should be saying what? Sorry, we don't have space. And so my exhortation to you, my admonition to you, if you've never been on a short-term trip, go. Cross a culture. Engage somebody as best you can in a clumsy gospel conversation so that you realize what it is that your long-term workers that you're investing in financially and prayerfully are actually doing over a 5 to 10 to 15 year process. So, Matthew 28, what are they to do, friends? Make disciples. How are they to do it? They're to what? Go, teach, and baptize. Where are they to do it? Among what? All nations, in Mark 16, 15, they're to proclaim the gospel in the whole world. But notice this, before we leave Mark's passage, notice that Mark tells them they're to proclaim the gospel, but he never bothers to give them the substance of the gospel. What do I mean when I say the substance of the gospel? He tells them, hey, you're to proclaim the gospel, which is Christians, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know is what we call the good news. But Mark doesn't tell them what the good news is here. He doesn't unpack that or explain that. He just merely asserts that they're to proclaim the gospel. Which then leads us to ask a question. What is the gospel? This is what we spent Wednesday night talking about in the evangelism seminar. You have to know the gospel before you can connect the gospel in order to share the gospel. If we were to ask a hundred Christians what is the gospel... You might be surprised to find 200 answers. <laughs> okay? What is the gospel? Now here's what's really incredible. Because in the third commissioning passage, in the third commissioning passage, Luke's going to tell us. So that brings us to Luke 24, 46 through 47. And this is what Jesus says to them. 
Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be, see it again, proclaimed in his name. So just like Matthew, just like Mark, there's similarities between these commissioning texts, but there's also unique distinctions, unique features, if you will. And here in Luke 24, 47, I would argue that Luke gives us the four ingredients of the gospel. The four ingredients of the gospel. So if you're taking notes, here they are. Number one, it is written. Number two, that the Christ should suffer and resurrect. Number three, that we should believe and repent. Number four, that for those who repent, they'll be offered the forgiveness of sins. So let me unpack that for you from the verse itself. Number one, it's written. When Luke begins to establish his ingredient for the gospel, he starts where, friends? In the Old Testament. The gospel is not something that shows up in Matthew 1 when Jesus steps onto the scene. It finds its roots, it's grown in the soil, if you will, of the Old Testament. So in many ways, the gospel traces its way back to the very beginning. In Genesis 1.1, God created the heavens and the earth, right? He creates everything and it's good. The apex of his creation is humanity itself. God plants them in the garden and says, cultivate it, grow it, be fruitful and multiply. You are to enjoy me and all that I've given you. And I'm giving you one commandment that you're not to eat from this particular tree. As a demonstration, as a demonstration of God's authority over their life as their creator, right? Humanity is not autonomous. In fact, they are accountable. They are accountable to a creator who made them. He sets the rules, he determines the parameters, and here's why, because he's holy, he's righteous, he's good, he's wise. We know that Adam and Eve disobey. They rebel against God. God promises them death, and upon the curse of man, the curse of woman, the curse of humanity, and the serpent, God promises in Genesis 3.15 what we call the first gospel promise. That the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent and that the serpent would bruise his heel. And so Luke begins with his gospel all the way back at who God is, who is man, what we've done to rebel against him, and our need for forgiveness, our need to be rescued from God's wrath, our need to be saved from death. And then he goes on and he's going to unpack who the Savior is whenever he begins to talk about the suffering and the resurrection of Christ. In fact, what Luke's after here, friends, what Luke's after is that the whole Bible is about Jesus. The Old Testament says he's coming, the Gospels say he's here, Acts proclaims him, the epistles explain him, and Revelation says he's returning. That's the whole Bible. And so what else does he tell us? That this Christ that was promised would live, die, and resurrect. That he would come as the God-man, fully God and fully man, live the perfect sinless life that none of you and I could ever live in thought, word, and deed. And then he's going to march to the cross and he's going to die the death that you and I deserve to die for our sins in our place as our substitute. And then he's going to be buried in the grave, and three days later, God the Father is going to raise him from the dead through the power of the Spirit, proving to the world that he's exactly who he said he was. And God goes on to say that whoever will turn from their sins, repent, so that's ingredient number three, whoever will repent and believe in who Christ is and what he accomplished, God says, I'll forgive your sins and wipe your slate clean. And so right here in Luke's commissioning passage is the substance of the gospel that the disciples in the church are to proclaim. Friends, we don't get to make it up. We don't get to water it down. Our job is to not be cute, trite, funny, entertaining, but to proclaim exactly what Jesus told us to proclaim. And it's by that proclamation of that gospel that God rescues men and women out of darkness and brings them into light. And so that's the substance of the gospel in Luke 24, 46 through 47. That brings us to John chapter 20. This brings us to our fourth commissioning passage. In our fourth commissioning passage, it's quite terse. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, Jesus says to the disciples in the church, so am I sending you. Now what does it mean to be sent like Jesus was sent? Friends, here's what it does not mean. It does not mean that we are sent to atone for sins. 
Christ was sent to atone for sins. We do not accomplish that work. It is finished. It's once for all. It's done. So then you got to back up and you got to ask, okay, if I'm not sent to atone, then what am I sent to do? Now, just like mountains are a theme in Matthew's gospel, sentness is a theme in John's gospel. If you were to read through John's gospel, Jesus is referred to as the sent one by my count 40 times. Now, I don't think there's anything significant about that number, even though 40 is a significant number in the Bible. I don't think that there's anything special about it in John's gospel. But the point is simply this. Jesus is referred to as the sent one 40 times. And on the 40th occasion, on the 40th occasion, it goes from Jesus being sent to now who's being sent? The disciples, the apostles, us. In fact, sentness is part of the Trinity. What do I mean when I say sentness is part of the Trinity? The Father sends the Son, and the Father and the Son send the Spirit, and the Spirit comes to indwell those who have repented and believed, and for those who are indwelt with the Spirit, they too are sent. How do we know that they're sent? Because in Acts chapter 13, 1 through 4, the church at Antioch sends Paul and Barnabas. In Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 15, Paul basically explains that people cannot hear the gospel unless someone goes and preaches, and someone can't go and preach unless they're what, friends? Sent. So to be a Christian in many ways is to be a sent one. Jesus didn't tell us to just be sent so that he would give us something to do between now and the second coming in order to keep us busy. As we're sent, we are acting, friends, as image bearers of the triune God himself. Now, what does it mean to be sent? I would argue at minimum, it means more, but at minimum, I would argue from John's gospel that to be sent means two things. Number one, it means to serve. Number two, it means to suffer. And where do I get that from? In John chapter 13, Jesus washes the disciples' feet, and as he's washing the disciples' feet, he tells them that a servant is not above his what, friends? His master. His, a servant is not above his master. In fact, let me read it for you in verse 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who, and here it comes, sent him. And then he tells them that they're to be an example and to follow him. And so as those who are sent, we can expect to serve. But not only can we expect to serve, friends, we can expect to suffer. Suffering is built into the fabric of the Christian life. As Americans, we are so allergic to it. But it is meant to shape us into the conformity and the image of Christ himself. Paul says, I rejoice that I might share in his sufferings, that it might make me more like Christ, bring me closer to him and my intimacy and fellowship with him. So not only are they serving, but they're suffering. And where do I get that from? In John 15. Two chapters later, Jesus is going to use that same phrase. A servant's not above his what? Master. They're going to persecute me. They're going to persecute what? You. So as we think about not only taking the gospel overseas to the nations. Friends, you know this, being in California. Even more so than Arkansas. To open your mouth and preach the gospel will continue to come at a greater and greater cost in this country. Now, how do you do that? How do you do that? Do you just pull up your bootstraps and try harder? Do you just muscle down, white knuckle it? No. That brings us to our last text where we'll begin to end our time. Here's what we're told in Acts 1-8 in the fifth commissioning passage. Jesus says to these guys that they will receive power in order to do this, we have to have a power that is outside of us. It's not something that can come from within. It's not something that we can manufacture or create. It comes from the Holy Spirit. And he says the, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon them, and he's going to come upon them to do a certain work, to witness. And they're going to witness, as I've already pointed out, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So I need to spend a little time there. But to really focus our attention on the fact that these guys are going to bear witness. What's a witness? Someone who testifies to what they've seen, what they've heard, what they've tasted, what they've touched. 
In John, 1 John chapter 1, John says, These things we proclaim to you, that which we've seen, we've heard, we've touched. For three years the disciples walked with Jesus. They saw him walk on water, feed 5,000, preach with authority like no one else, raise Lazarus from the dead. And in Acts 4.13, when the Sanhedrin has Peter and John in their sights, they recognized that these men were uneducated, but they were bold. And where did their boldness come from? Did it come from themselves? No, it came from the fact that Acts tells us in 4.13 that they had been with Jesus. So what do we learn from this commissioning passage? That if we're going to fulfill the Great Commission... It's not going to include trying harder. It's going to mean getting on our knees more often and begging God to help us do an impossible task. And what else is it going to mean? It's going to mean that those of us who are going to testify to Jesus are going to need to have been with him. Have you been with the Savior, friends? Or are you more distracted by the things of this world? cares that have begun to strangle out your communion with him. So I would encourage you, maybe just this week, maybe later this afternoon, to go be with Jesus. Five commissioning passages. Jesus' last words, friends, were in many ways, you could say, his first priority. And so LBC, I'm thankful for what God's already doing among this body of believers, and I pray that he would do it more, that you would increase in these things more and more. So can I pray for us, and we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you that your word is living and active, and that your spirit brings both conviction and encouragement. God, we need your help. You are mindful that we are but dust, and so help us, Lord, Help us, Lord, to fulfill what it is that you've commanded us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.